Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. Pace setters provided the vast majority of the drafting benefit. What does it mean if a human runs two hours in a contrived setup with technology and drafting? And They've so far named 41, unless I've miscounted, pace setters. I want to see it in a legitimate race when it actually represents something like a human advance as opposed to a technological sidestep. In May 2017, great Kenyan marathon runner Eliab Kipchoge fell just 26 seconds short of breaking the sub-two-hour barrier for the marathon on the Monza motor racing circuit and vowed to try again. That again is between the 12th and 20th of October 2019 in Vienna, weather dependent. This time, sponsors and organisers have done even more to help Kipchoge achieve the feat. But is the Ineos 159 project just a sporting gimmick or a real reflection of human performance? Professor Rostaka, as usual, along here with me, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, let's start off with a bit of the history of the marathon and when the idea of a sub-two-hour marathon kind of came to the fore, because when the guys were running 2.15, 2.12, it wasn't something people were thinking about, but then suddenly it became part of the zeitgeist of athletics in the last uh, sort of five or six years, but maybe even before that? Yeah, before that, it's... Um People love round numbers. They love to form an at mile and a 10 second 100. And so the two hour marathon falls into the same categories. And so I think ever since the world record was even 20 minutes from two hours, people were wondering, I wonder where this, where the human limit eventually will fall. And in 1991, a paper came out in the Journal of Applied Physiology by a scientist called Michael Joyner, in which he described how marathons are limited or constrained by physiological attributes like VO2 max, running economy, and lactate threshold. These are concepts that many listeners will be familiar with because they feature so commonly in magazines. And so, I mean, you, you edit Runner's World South Africa. You've published 12. If you, if you publish 12 a year, 10 of them will have at least one of those three words in it. Yeah. So, they, they've become <laughs> part of the language around running. VO2 max economy threshold. And what Michael Joyner did in 1991 was to say, right, let's model what performance would be possible if we optimized each of those three things. And it was, let's say, the best of all three. The highest VO2 max we can think of, well, not unreasonably, the best economy and the lactate threshold. What would humans be capable of? And his conclusion was that if you took, call it the idealized theoretical human, they would run 157.58. That was in 1991. Yeah, no one was sure. really talking realistically about it happening until the mid-2010s because what then happened, and the history of this is interesting because in 1988, the world record was set by an Ethiopian called Densima in Rotterdam, 206.50. It got stuck there for a decade. No one broke it for 10 years. And then I think two things changed. One was the big money went into the marathons. And number two was the, the track generation of the 90s. 
stepped up to the marathon. And so from 1998 onwards, this, the world record starts falling a lot more. And I just want to count. I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten world records are set from 1998 until 2014. Yeah. And the 2014 one is a 20257. It's a it's a smaller barrier because it's a sub 203. And now, now suddenly people say, well, here comes two hours. Here comes a sub two. So it was always in view, um, theoretically. When Jordan was doing his study, the, t- the marathon mark was around the 207, 206 mark. Yeah, roughly. it would have been 20650 yeah. at the yeah. time. In 1991, when that article was written, it's 20650. So yeah. no, no one's really thinking realistically because the world record's typically falling by 30 seconds each time. Yeah. So when you're at 207, call it, that's 14 batches, yeah. 14 events. Yeah. And if it happens every two or three years, it's 40 years away. <laughs> yeah. So, and then yeah. it gets stuck for 10 years and no one's... Anyway, suddenly the East Africans come along and you get Turgat, Gebri Selassie, Gebri Selassie, Macau, Kipsang, Kemeta. And then in 2014, it gets formalized into the first sub-2 attempt. Dennis Kemeta. Yeah. yeah, so it was when Kemeto runs it was when Kemeto runs two oh two fifty seven. And I remember then reading just after that, a group of scientists said we're we're gonna make this happen within five years. Yeah. We're gonna apply sports science, hydration, biomechanics, training, all our knowledge and make this thing happen within within five years, which to me was outrageous. I, I remember somewhat jokingly and for for my troubles, I got called an armchair professor in response by one of the scientists on it. for the first time. Uh, that was the first time that particular insult had been thrown my way, but not not the first insult. But anyway, hi there, Yanis. Yanis <laughs> and I are good mates. We laugh about it now. Um, I remember jokingly saying, yeah, you'd do it if you put giant fans on the back of a truck and blew them along or made them run downhill. Yeah. Because five years to knock off two minutes 57 is not happening yeah. in the normal Scheme of things. So, so it was clear then, I think, that if you wanted to accelerate it, you had to apply some kind of bypass. You had to do something that's contrived. You used the word gimmicky. That's what I think of this. I think it's gimmicky to the point of annoying. Um, <laughs> but you had to do something to sidestep the normal physiological limit because physiological limits are not broken by that much in one go. Yeah, you know, two fifty-seven listeners are. Uh, you know, two fifty-seven is not bad. I'm a three twenty marathon runner, and I'm going to run three ten. Yeah, yeah, but your ten minutes and their ten seconds are about the same thing. Yeah, it's all <laughs> so, relative. Yeah, so two fifty-seven is an enormous leap, and I thought it was impossible to happen in five years unless you, as I joked, ran it downhill or with with giant tailwinds. Um, turns out that they've brought it much closer than that. But again, I think it's because they've thrown at it certain contrivances which i guess we can we can discuss because ultimately you have to bypass the physiological limit to accelerate it yeah let's just uh, delve a bit deeper into this thing between vo2 max and economy now anybody that's involved in athletics will tell you they'll know what vo2 max is and everybody has their vo2 max values and there's always a lot of discussion about whether vo2 max makes that much of a difference but just give us a bit of a praise about VO2 max. We know that top uh, athletes, both cyclists and runners, probably got VO2 max in the upper 70s to the early 80s. Um, what is VO2 max for those of that us, for those of you that don't know what it is? Yeah, so there's there's three um, there's three physiological characteristics that Joyner highlights, and as I said, this becomes a staple in the conversation for yeah. all runners. And I remember when I did honors, I mean, this was the start point, right? So VO2 max 
is the maximal oxygen uptake. So it's the it's the highest volume of oxygen that your body can use at top end sustainable running speed. So typically what would happen is a guy would go into a laboratory and run on a treadmill and they start nice and slow, call it five minutes a K, eight minute mile for those in the US. And then every minute or two and a half, whatever your protocol, it gets a little bit faster. And the runner has to keep up with the pace. And as you speed up, your oxygen consumption goes up, 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 up. And eventually at the point at which you would um, <laughs> be shot off the back of the treadmill, exhausted, mm. the, the moment at which you stay, I'm done, I can't go any faster, that oxygen amount is called your VO2 max. So in other words, as you're breathing the heaviest and you're at the most maximal speed that, you can, that you're trying to sustain, yeah. that's, what, and, that's the oxygen you're using. Right, and of course it's driven by the muscles because that's yeah. where the oxygen consumption is happening. So, so it's the ability of, of oxygen to get to the muscles, in other words, from your breathing, goes into your lungs, that oxygen goes into your blood system, goes into the muscles. It's the rate at which that happens. It's the total volume at which it, ha it okay. uh, that can be used. So it's measured at the mouth. So it's the difference between what comes in and what goes out, basically. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so that's VO2 max. So, yeah. so as you mentioned, your top runners are in the low 80s. Cross-country skiers have been measured in the 90s. Some cyclists, some Scandinavian cyclists are up there. Okay. So, um, so generally so speaking... So it's a bit like the, it's, it's, it's the engine. It's, it's the yes, size so the, of the, the analogy engine. I always use is think of a car in the size of the engine. So what's so the capacity? So it's V6 or a V8. So it's top-end capacity yeah. with respect to how much oxygen you can use. And obviously, the better it is, the better performance will be allowed at that oxygen amount. Yeah. But it's, it's linked to economy because having a large engine and being economical are in opposition with one another. If you think again about the car analogy, you don't find a Bugatti Veyron that uses the fuel of a Toyota Prius. Yeah. So, so generally, so you can, and this makes logical sense. If you're running at a treadmill at three minutes a K and your oxygen consumption is 74, right? And my oxygen consumption at the same speed is 65, I'm more economical than you are. Yes. It stands to reason that when we both hit our top speed at, say, 245 a K, I'll still be using less than you. Right. So my VO2 max will be lower than yours because I'm more economical than you are. And this has been shown in cyclists. There's a paper by Alejandro Lucia called Inverse Relationship Between VO2 Max and Efficiency in Professional Cyclists. So the, the, the cyclist with a higher efficiency tends to have a lower VO2 max, and the runner who's more economical tends to have a lower VO2 max. So economy is potentially as important, if not more important, than VO2 max. Okay. Because when a, when a guy's running a marathon, when you'll watch Kipchoge in Vienna now next week, and he's going along at his 253 a K, he's not at VO2 max pace. He's at 85% of it maybe. Yeah. So the, the, the physiological determinant of that ability is, is in large part economy, right? So what is economy? Economy is how much oxygen does it cost to run sub-max speeds. So like your car uses six liters of fuel to travel 100 k's, a physiologist can measure and say that it use, you take 180 mils of oxygen per kilogram to run one kilometer. It's cost of transport, basically. Okay, so, if it, so in other words, a high VO2 max is not necessarily determinant because it's how you use that, that potential engine of yours in the most economical way, particularly over sustained distances like the marathon. Yeah, and it may actually be misleading because having a high VO2 max might be a consequence of being uneconomical. Yeah. You might actually be wasteful and that's why it's high. Is there another is there events where VO2 max is more important than economy? Uh, all Shorter endurance. Events? All look, it matters in all endurance events. So if you look at the world's population, 
VO2 max is a very powerful predictor of performance. Yeah. So you can work them in either direction. You can predict performance based on VO2 max and sometimes the other way around. But within an elite marathon run and within the top, let's say, 50 in the world, it's not a predictor at all because other things start to matter because they all have it. Yeah. So, so it's not, I'm not saying that VO2 max doesn't matter. And Kipchoge will arguably have a high VO2 max. I'd love to know what it, what yeah. it is. Yes. Um, that's a, by the way, as an aside, the, the, this whole thing is a great experiment, the sub two thing. Yeah. But we've seen no data from it. So it's actually not an experiment. They sold it as an experiment when they first did it, you know, Nike's breaking two attempt, as if we were going to get all this great data on Decisa, Kipchoge, and Tedesa, who were the three first, but we've seen none of it. So it's yeah. like it didn't exist. So it's a, it's a, it was, it was oversold in my opinion as an experiment. But anyway, so join it. says, let's take a VO2 max of 84 and someone with exceptional running economy. And then the third ingredient here is lactate threshold, basically. So in other words, that, that's less easy to relate to cars. <laughs> uh, if VO2 max is the engine and economy is fuel consumption, then lactate threshold is kind of like, it's like a car sucking its own exhaust fumes. It's it's like it's yeah, it's like an idling capacity. Yeah. So okay. for that car to travel along the highway at 80 miles or 120k an hour, um, can it do that without the engine exploding? Is basically what lactate threshold yeah. is. So for for an athlete to run, if you see if if an athlete runs above lactate threshold, then fatigue occurs very quickly. If they're below it, then in theory, all those things that cause fatigue are delayed. And so you have to have a high capacity to run at close to maximum. So for the average person running out there, your lactate threshold is when those legs start burning and they're telling you to stop and you just you know you can only sustain this maybe for another minute or two before you're going to implode. So that feeling of pushing just beyond that red line is probably where lactate threshold sits. Yeah, and it manifests different ways. So for instance, there's a ventilatory threshold where it becomes more difficult to talk. That's why, and you would have done this again in the magazine, the old talk test. Have you yeah. heard that concept? Yeah. So if you can have a conversation without gasping for air, then you're below your threshold. Whereas if you can't, then then you can't. Now that's that's not lactate threshold, but they they're all kind of related to one another in some sense. So again, what you want is you want a guy with a high VO2 max, a very low oxygen cost, which means high economy, and then you want him to have the capacity to run at a high percentage of max before he exceeds that threshold. Yeah. How important do you think the running style of the athlete is? If you look at a guy like Elio Kipchoge, he's got an extremely economical look when he runs. You can see his body doesn't particularly move a lot. Um, he's got that classic marathon economy style and beyond just the physiology of what he is. Yeah, I'm sure that there is there is a mechanical basis for economy, but it hasn't been described yet. Mm. So when you look at two athletes, your ability to predict which of them is more economical is pretty low based on who looks more compact. So the old head bobbing, arms flailing, running technique isn't necessarily more wasteful than than the person who's mm. beautifully complex. And, and you're right, Kipchoge, technically, when you watch him run, you think that's how humans should run. Yeah. He looks like if you designed <laughs> yeah. a runner to run. He almost looks like he's got wheels underneath him because it's like the upper body is hardly moving. Yet and the feet are landing right underneath his body. He's got those super efficient stride. I mean, it's it's obviously not something he's necessarily taught himself. He runs as he naturally would run, and he's just developed this incredibly 
economical way of running. Yeah, and I think the I think the key that drives economy is the mechanics of the lower limb, and in particular the energy return that you get from the tendons. That would be my theory: is that the tendons, especially the Achilles tendon and also the arch of the foot, are critical to running economy because what's happening there remember is that as you land that Achilles tendon stretches and then the muscle calf muscle contracts and it further loads the tendon and the tendon then functions as a spring so it returns a large portion of the energy that it stores and that's the difference so again the East African runners this is this is a generalization but if you compare someone who is from East Africa, equatorial, they've got what's called this nilotic build. They've got very long limbs, very long Achilles tendons compared to calf muscle. Whereas if you go further north, you discover the opposite. You get larger muscles, shorter tendons. The tendons are stiffer. Mm-hmm. And so it's a stiff, long tendon that is economical. Um, and so that is likely the reason for the economy advantages that those athletes would enjoy and that's been documented actually there's a paper the same Lucia that I mentioned before and Carl Foster have a paper actually called I forget the name exactly but it's it's relating the economy to the circumference of the calf muscle yeah so the larger your calf muscle is the less economical you are so, so that's the more oxygen it costs you to run. So you're screwed, basically. Yeah, we, we, we both, <laughs> compared to Kenyans. I remember in 20... Just if, it, if people who don't know what Ross and I look like, you might have seen us in some of our YouTube videos, but Ross has um, substantially big calves, and I would say I've got slightly smaller calves than you. And I think there's been a couple of occasions, and I think a couple of years ago we did a an, an interview for, and a story for Runners World where we were comparing the VO2 max of some of the Kenyan athletes who came down, you had a photograph of your calves against yeah. the, the Kenyan calves. And and it is, I mean, if you want to see a prime example, I mean, maybe we could even post that um, when this podcast goes out and you can have a look at that difference because it is visually, you can see the difference in the calf structure of Ross's calves and, and those Kenyans. Yeah, theirs look like forearms. I mean, my, <laughs> forearm, my forearms are about the same size as yeah. their calf muscles. Absolutely, and uh, if and there's also, I mean, there's a there's almost a weight advantage there because well, if you've key. got small calves, you're not picking up a heavy calf, are you? Right. So the two mechanisms by which this happens is is mass, yeah. just especially what's called distal mass, which means far away from the center of the body. So weight closer to your feet is much more costly than weight central to the body. But obviously, any weight is costly. So small calves equals less weight. And then the other thing is they've got these long tendons. So you see the, the photograph. I mean, I'm all muscle, no tendon. They're all tendon, no muscle. So <laughs> it's like I've, I've shown this picture, so I spot the non-runner. It's yeah. obvious. And, and yeah, so that was a group of 15 Kenyans, and they all share the same build. Yeah. And I remember in that study we measured VO, VO2 max doesn't jump out at you as remarkable. I've tested local guys, call them 32 to 35-minute 10K, which is – average solid but average with the same vo2 max as our kenyans yeah but the economy huge difference so your your kenyan runner is using 180 to 190 mils of oxygen per kilogram per kilometer yeah the local guys are using 220 to 230 so you're talking at 30 percent more economy in the kenyans and that's how they are able to run at 250 a k for a half marathon or whatever Pick your pick your distance and time. So that's yeah. a massive that's a massive difference. 
I know we were watching uh, at the time of doing this podcast. It was the day after the World of Athletics Championships. We were watching the 10,000 last night, and I was really intrigued by watching the very tall Ethiopian runner. I forget his name now, but. Kajalcha. Yeah, I mean, he was. He looked like he was running. They were running a 10,000 at sort of three. Um, uh, two, 240, two, sorry, 245, yeah. 245 pace. Um, and he was literally like, like he was cruising. Mm. He looked so comfortable. Then, of course, I think he got the bronze yesterday. Or the silver? Silver. I think got the yeah. silver. Um, but the efficiency of him was remarkable. Because he's slightly taller than the rest of the athletes, it made him look like he was loping along at this incredible speed. So it just goes to show you that you know efficiency can visually look like so – you can, you can almost see somebody that's visually efficient. Yeah, when you, especially when you see them live. Like there's a yeah. fl- fluidity of the movement and they, they don't seem to be working hard. And a lot of that is because so much of their propulsion comes from passive energy return yeah. in the sense that it's coming from those tendons. So if you want to make a faster runner, distance runner, then you've got a couple of avenues. You can improve their ability to run at a higher percentage of max, i.e. lactate threshold. Yeah. That's really training. That's, met- that's metabolic biochemistry. You can improve the size of the engine, which is difficult to do, but I think the economy thing's a big deal. Mm. I, I, th- I really think if you can make someone 2% more economical, the benefits of that to performance are significant. Can you though? I mean, can you change the economy? Well, the shoes do it. Okay. So we're, we're almost like, it's almost now. like we can now, th- this, would, this would be a segue into how yeah. has the sub two come so close within so, so few years? I mean, yeah. in 2014, no way is it happening in five years. I remember writing something there saying that the next three minutes, call it, will take, I, f- I figured 20 seconds every two, three years. So I, I, that's, you know, that's the three minutes, 20 seconds, that's nine batches of three years each, 25 to 30 years, I seem to recall writing. Yeah, I think I remember that as and well. And here we are now and we've got 25 seconds to go. Why? I think that they've bypassed physiology, physiological limits by improving economy through the use of the shoe. Yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about that shoe. I mean, it is obviously the Nike Vaporfly, and it's called the Percent shoe now. It used to be called the Four Percent shoe. It's called. It was called Four Percent, based yeah. on research we'll discuss. It's now called Next Percent. Right. And they haven't published. And in fact, I was reading this morning, the the scientist who did that Four Percent study was free to talk about that research. Since they developed a new one, they've actually gagged him. He's not allowed to talk about it. So what does that tell you? What is it today? Uh, it tells you that there's <laughs> shenanigans going on somewhere in the background here. I, in other words, they're adding more technology to the shoe to make it more economical for the runner to run it. Well, there's a few different interviews with guys from within Nike, and they're saying, well, we didn't want to put a number to it because we don't want to say 5% because it seems like it could be more for some people. So we called it next, but it's definitely more than four. So right. so we're now in version two. The, the the previous breaking two attempt was run with a 4%. This one will be run with the next percent. And it's not even the next percent. It's a prototype of the next percent. Yeah. yeah. Because each of those runners and Kipchoge especially will have a shoe designed specifically for him, right. giving him maximal economy. Yes. And there's a patent doing the rounds, by the way, uh, submitted by Nike where they've put these these fluid-filled pads. There are four pads, little round discs. You can almost imagine around under the forefoot, it's like a little stack, two by two. And these little pads are filled with fluid and then inflated to a pressure that I think it's between 15 and 30 PSI. Mm. And those little fluid pads, filled pads or sacks, are responsible for trying to dissipate the force onto the carbon fiber plate in order to improve the, the return so and to disperse the forces. 
So that's that's what he's probably running in. So it's it's a shoe even beyond the next percent. Yeah. I mean, we have touched on the shoe in, in previous podcasts, and we do plan to do one specifically around the shoe. But just very briefly, we, we talked about some of the ethical um, reasoning behind the shoe, saying that unless the shoe is available to every runner, my question in a previous podcast, in fact, the one before this one, um, was that if you know anybody can buy this Vaporfly shoe, but that to each of those athletes out there, it's been customized. So the readily available shoe isn't available to everybody. And that's one of the moral issues around this is all the ethical issues around this is it's not a freely available product for anybody to run in. It's one of them. I think the other one is that the commercial model around running is really you, you see these, these runners are not footballers who pose in, in Gillette adverts and who model jeans and underwear for jockey or whoever it is (laughs) and perfume and deodorants. Runner really sponsorship opportunities is footwear. Yeah. I mean, there's very few elite distance runners who have anything other than a footwear sponsor. Yeah. And so when when you have a situation now where the shoe makes, and we alluded to this in our in our previous podcast, if the shoe makes more of a difference than the normal difference between athletes, then it becomes decisive to the outcome of a given race. Yeah. So ten guys are on the start line, five are in shoe A, the Vaporfly, five are in other shoes, let's say. If that shoe is worth two to four percent, yeah, and the normal difference between first and tenth is one point eight percent, the whole result is skewed by the shoe, yeah. And that's not a situation that for me is, it's not untenable, but it's not desirable for running. Because what do you want to see when you watch marathon running, yeah, or ten k's? I'd like to see the physiology of the best athlete win the race, not who has the best shoe that skews the the normal relationship between the input which is the physiology and the output which is the running speed yeah and that's what i think the shoe's done so i don't know how to evaluate what i'm seeing i can't when i see bikele run a 20141 and the guy in second runs 20248 and even kipchoge running 20139 jeffrey camel the other day broke the half marathon record in the shoe yeah is he are we looking at the same guy as we were three four years ago but running a minute to a minute and a half faster? Or are we looking at a new athlete who's made a human advancement? Yeah. And, I you, think, and, and your suggestion is that it's more I, about the, the tech? I think we're seeing today the same athletes we saw in 2013, 14, yeah. 15. I don't think the athlete today is a minute faster than they were then. I think that the shoe is making the same athlete a minute to a minute and a half faster. So that to me skews the relationship. And again... I get this on Twitter, including from the aforementioned Michael Joyner, is, oh, but what about Bannister in 1954 on Cinder Tracks? Who cares? I don't care about what Bannister was doing in 54 on a Cinder Track. Yeah. I'd have to be really, really like after 10 beers, we could have that debate. Who's a better runner, Bannister or Chariot, Kipchoge or Peters? It's a stupid argument. It's a waste of time. I suppose their point is that technology is continually advancing. Therefore, embrace the fact that technology is advancing, and and I, yeah. I guess it's in support of the fact that every time there's a new product, whether it's a foam and a new shoe, it's going to make running more economical. It's, yeah. it's that point and at so where, there is, and there is incremental advancement. I agree, yeah. um, but for me, the the challenge is when the advancement is sudden and large enough that it skews our interpretation of now. So again, I'm not interested in whether Kipchoge is a better runner than Jim Peters, yeah. who ran two fifteen in the 1950s. Of course he's better. Everything about his context and his environment and humankind has changed since then. But I am interested in whether Kipchoge is a better runner than Kometo and Kipsang. Yeah. 
Uh, and I can't evaluate that. The only basis on which I can evaluate it is that Kipchoge has won, I think it's 11 out of 12 marathons. And so the fact that he's basically unbeatable suggests that he's better. But I can't evaluate. And, and people must understand that records in running are fundamental to how we understand human running. Yeah, It's not like swimming where there are 30 world records every couple of years. World records in running are scarce enough that when something skews the likelihood of them happening, they that that, that undermines the fabric of running, in my opinion. So, so I get that there's technology and I get that there are advances and by 2035 we'll be discussing this as though, okay, fine, whatever, maybe there'll be something else then. But yeah. Yeah. right now I cannot evaluate what I'm seeing as human. And now you're going to say, and this is the problem, Ineos 159, they've got this thing, no human is limited and blah, blah, blah. They're not breaking the limit. They're sidestepping the limit. Yeah. So it's like I used the analogy in an interview with CNN is if the world record on earth for high jump is 245, why can't we jump three meters? Well, because gravity. Because human <laughs> muscles and tendons are not strong enough to overcome earth's gravity. Same thing for the marathon. Why can't we break two? Because human lungs, heart, and muscles are not efficient and powerful or whatever enough to break two hours for the marathon. So how do we do it? Well, for high jump, we go do it on Mars <laughs> where the gravity is lower. Does it mean anything if a human jumps three meters on Mars? Have you changed anything about human beings? No. What does it mean if a human runs two hours in a contrived setup with technology and drafting and so on? In my opinion, it means very yeah. little for humans. It's a cool experiment, but it doesn't translate across contexts yeah. and environments. The way that, you know, it's 10 second 100 was broken in Mexico City. Why? Because of the altitude. Because air resistance is so much lower. Yeah. So in effect, humans to break 10 seconds had to go to Mexico City and they could do it by overcoming, or not ever, see, not, not overcoming a physiological limit. They sidestepped it. The mm. same physiology produced a faster time. Yeah, that's what's happening here. It's the same physiology producing a faster time because you're throwing all these other things at it. And good for you. It shows human ingenuity. It's a breakthrough. There's no doubt it's a breakthrough if yeah. it happens. Yeah. It's not a human breakthrough. Yeah. Physiological breakthrough. Yeah. And it's good for obviously for Nike because they get the kudos if it works and they're showing what's possible. And I think to some extent the shoe technology that we've talked about um, around the shoe has as, as a result of this attempt. And uh, maybe this is a new way that shoes will be developed. I know that lots of different brands are looking at these carbon footprint, uh, foot, um, foot plates in their shoes. So it's not just, you know, it's, it's kind of almost a new age of um, shoe technology that's that's kind of as a result of this. Let's uh, talk a little bit um, about some of the mechanics that they're putting in place. Uh, the route itself, um, pretty well designed in terms of making sure that they can go as fast as possible, up and down route with a bit of a, a curve at the, both ends of the route. Um, but is it, that's really the, the key to it, not to make, sure, to make sure they don't have any turns. Yeah, so the route has to be pancake flat um, with minimal turning. Turning, people might say, isn't that, that seems a bit excessive. But when you're running 21 k's an hour, a 90 degree turn is quite costly. Uh, try it and see. Mm. You, you run, it'll be close to your sprinting speed and then make a right angle turn. Yeah. You'll probably, the cent centripetal force will throw you off to the side <laughs> and you'll end up on your face. So, so if you can reduce the number of turns, that's one of the reasons that Berlin is fast and London has always been thought to be a little bit slower. It's got all those little... Twisty yeah. bits through the city center yeah. and so forth. Stuff, stuff on the cobbles as well in London. Yeah, so it's yeah, not optimal. It's not so optimal, you, you yeah. want to you make every possible 
cost to time. Even if it's as small as one second, five times, you get rid of. So mm. they've got this thing. It's a 9.6 kilometer lap at the end of which on either side looks like a circle. One of them's a big wide circle and the other one looks like a smaller one. It's so like it's a giant lollipop on either side. Basically, yeah. yeah. It's, so it looks like two wide U-turns and two long straights. And they'll run that four and a half times, I guess. Um with fans cheering, which was the difference in Monza. They didn't have any spectators on Not the fans course. from behind, fans. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got to remember my tongue-in-cheek fans. Well, that, that's, I mean, that is the key thing, that there are there are going to be crowds watching this as yeah. opposed to the first attempt, which was kind of almost done, you know, with nobody watching at all. It, it, this is not a scientific question, but I reckon that's going to make quite a difference. If you've got people cheering and there's a great bit of, um, a bit of a show going on, people are going to get behind it, and that will raise the performance of the athletes yeah it's arguably worth something yeah especially sure. in the last 10 k being cheered once in a while yeah i yeah. reckon i mean i don't know what goes through an elite runner's mind during a marathon i mean he's obviously so focused and he's internalized his concentration to thinking mm. about the job yeah but there must there is an awareness of support and cheering and i think especially if he's if he starts to drop off let's say with 5k's to go let's say he's on 159.50 pace and it starts to hurt, and it's it will obviously hurt. Um, the presence of fans might be worth the five yeah. seconds that it takes to hang on. I don't know. Yeah, interesting. If you would ever measure the cheering of fans as a physiological advantage, well, not a physiological advantage, but a mental advantage. There was a study once that was done. It was done in Japan where they made guys do this one rep maximum isometric. So they're basically sitting in a dynamometer doing a. Mm. I forget if it was a bicep curl or a leg extension, but yeah. either way, it's a it's an isolated muscle is, uh, isometric contraction, and they make them go as hard as possible for two minutes. And obviously, what happens is you push out a lot of force in the beginning, and as the muscle fatigues, that force drops, drops, drops. Yeah. And then what they would do is they'd play in a soundtrack of people cheering for the guy, and sure enough, it goes back up. <laughs> it doesn't get it doesn't get back up to so normal. So there is some signs behind cheering. Yeah, yeah. And then right at the end, they shot a gun off behind his head without telling him, <laughs> and then it goes up back to normal. That's just adrenaline, though. Yeah, that's just like the spike you yeah. get, and that yeah. that would be the mechanism for fans. I reckon cheering would I mean, be some uh, central. We're dig we're digressing slightly on this, but it is an interesting question. When they do the VO two max test, and I've done a couple of these, um, I don't know whether this is a standard protocol, but. At the end of VO2 max test, one of the key parts of it, as things start getting tougher, is the person doing VO2 max test often gets quite vocal about encouraging that person yeah. to go harder. So there is—is is that part of the VO2 max test? That sort of encouragement, come on, you can do better, go harder. Um, is it—is it, or is it just the guy wanting to get the maximum out of that athlete? Yeah, the assumption when you—I mean, by definition, VO2 max implies maximal effort. Yeah, and so if cheering the guy on. Yeah. gets another 1% out of him and that's worth yeah. another one milliliter of oxygen to your result, then then it's better than not doing it. Um, there have been some studies where they offer financial rewards and stuff and people will. People respond to incentives. Yeah. And one of those incentives is is motivational. Yeah. So, yeah. So it will make – so that was one thing in Monza that was not done. Yeah. You know, when they did it previously, it was done and they started it at like 6 in the morning in the dark Pretty much the only time they had crowd support was when they came around to the pits, basically, where they <laughs> would swap out the pace setters. So yeah. this will, if you believe that to be worth 15, 20 seconds, yeah. now we're right on the cusp of sub two. So for those of you listening in Vienna, 
uh, to keep an eye on the uh, on the uh, uh, these websites, and you can have a look and see whether they're going to be they're going to do the event. I think this is one of the key things that they've almost set a a, a window period. They're not saying it's going to be in the, at that time. It's going to be in that week that they've set aside, and obviously it's going to be all about the right um, conditions, weather conditions, wind, heat, all those sort of things. So um, it's not a, a defined day. It's a day within a week that they're going to be setting this thing up, and I guess that's. That's a critical part of it, but like they used to do with the with the big wave surfing competitions, where you'd have sort of a green and a and a red light based on whether the surfing conditions were ideal. That's exactly what's happening here with with the running. It's the conditions have to be good. I assume it has to be reasonably cool. Wind has to be definitely not a factor at all, and it's going to be held in a, a forested lane, so obviously less chance of any wind issue there as well. Yeah, so. When you're throwing so many pacemakers, and people can go to the website and look at the list of names, it's a who's who of middle and long distance running. You're doing that because you want to shelter your guy, Kipchoge. So now there's a headwind at five meters a second or whatever. That's messing up all your plans. Mm. So it makes sense that they've blocked off an entire week and they'll wait for it to be absolutely perfect, which is quite tricky because if you're Kipchoge, by, by Friday, you just want to go. Yeah. And let's say now the wind is. We wake up on Saturday morning and it's a bit blustery. Okay, we delay it. We yeah. delay it on Sunday. You've got to you've got to try and manage your emotional, psychological state and be in the shape to. And that's a new. That's a first. I mean, no marathon runners ever had to do that. Big yeah. wave surfers, yes, but not a marathon runner. So that's an interesting dynamic. I, yeah, I. And he's got to tick over a little bit in between, doesn't he? He's, yeah, he can't, he can't stop running. Right. So yeah. he'll have to. He'll have to manage. And I mean, imagine we get to Thursday, Friday now, like six days later. Six yeah. days, you come off that edge, you come off that peak that you're on. Remember, you're ta- he'll be tapering for it a little bit. Yeah. Um, he would have reduced the volume of training and so on. And so, yeah, it, it, it's quite an interesting dynamic, I reckon, to manage that. And mm. I suspect they'll try and go as early as they can, but you've got to place a bet at some point. Imagine you start and within 90, 90 minutes of the start, the wind is blowing. Yeah. yeah. So they'll have a... I guarantee the physiology, the meteorologist might be the most important. I was going to say, I bet you they've employed some serious meteorologists to kind of give them an exact uh, time and whether the wind is going to pick up and what the temperature is going to be. One of the interesting things about this is that the actual course is being held in an area of Vienna known as the Lung of Vienna. So a lot of trees in that area. I mean, this sounds like a crazy question, but trees produce a lot of oxygen. Is there going to be more oxygen available in the Uh, Lung of Vienna? Trivial amounts. I mean, like. (laughs) I don't know Vienna that well. I was there a year ago and I don't recognize where this is being done. But when they say Green Lung of Vienna, we're talking like a road lined with trees. Yeah. It's like it looked it looks on the maps like the Champs Elysees does, you know, a tree lined avenue. So it's not like they're going through you know the black forest in Germany or something. So I don't think that'll make a difference. But on that when the when this first sub 2 thing was announced, one of the things they said they were going to look at was um running it at the Dead Sea because they would be below sea level and that would mean more oxygen. So physiologists have considered this idea of how can we actually get more oxygen? It yeah. all comes back it all comes back to the same thing I began with is you got you're at 20257. You've got 2 minutes 58 to find. Yeah. Where are you going to get it from? Well, you're not going to get it in the normal physiological state of things. So you've got to bypass it with the environment and that was one of the ways they were going to do it was find a way to put more oxygen into the guy's body. Yeah. And in the end, they, they didn't go ahead with it. But it was one of the – and I remember I was in Dallas um, in 2016 and I spoke to one of the world's foremost authorities on altitude physiology, a guy called Ben Levine, and 
we spoke about that Dead Sea thing, and he said, no, nah, it's just, is it? you can put okay. more oxygen in the air, but the, the limiting stuff is downstream of that. Not and even so with a couple of seconds, you don't think? Unless you did it with 100% <laughs> oxygen. Yeah. You know, then it's, we did studies actually at the, <laughs> we've got a hyperbaric chamber nearby here in Cape Town where they send divers for decompression. Mm. Um, and also they treat wounds, diabetic ulcers and sepsis and so forth. And uh, we used to do studies there where we put 40%, 60% oxygen. And you can make small differences to improvement, but mm. it's a pretty robust system. It's hard, to, it's hard to move the needle on physiology, actually. Yeah, yeah. More difficult than people might think. Well, we've talked about physiology, and as you say, that's one of the needles that are marginal gains, and for want of a better term. Um, let's talk about the environmental factors. So there has been some discussion after the first attempt around what they did to create the right environmental and to almost negate the environmental issues. The, the first one is, well, not the main one, is really all about drafting and about reducing the, the air that the, the runner has to run through. And there was some controversy around the first attempt with the start clock. <laughs> and I always thought that the start clock had been deliberately designed as being big, purely because it was going to have a sort of a, a, a an aerodynamic effect and a drafting effect like you do in cycling. Yeah. But as you said to me just before the podcast, they initially denied that that was the reason why the start clock was as big as it was. Yeah, they, they said that in hindsight, in retrospect, they said, oh, we didn't realize what controversy that would cause and, and we didn't um, we didn't make it big to act in any way to aid the drafting. I was like, come on, man. Yeah. Because when the you look at the science in the world talking about this. You, you, you look at the clock and obviously it's, I can understand there's a clock mounted to the lead car. Yeah. The other thing mounted to the lead car was these little lasers that would point to where the pace setters had to be because they'd worked out this optimal configuration for all the, the flying V formation that they were running in. But then they had this big clock, and it, it looked about six times bigger than it needed to be. And they say, oh, it was just coincidental. No, it wasn't. Come on, man. Like, don't. <laughs> so that's where it gets like, again, it feels like sleight of hand. You know, it feels yes. like we're going to throw all these different things, and we're going to say what it was. And I remember writing something saying, no, the, the real hero of the day was the clock. Again, I was sort of somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because I find this whole thing really annoying. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, so, I mean, for those of you that cycle, and for those of you run at probably run at a reasonable pace, somewhat faster than me. Um, the, the drafting effect is obviously very real in cycling. And if you talk about the Grand Tours and you watch all the big protected riders, they'll sit in the middle of a bunch. And the economy around that is uh, talked about it being a 30 40% saving if you're sitting in the middle of a bunch where the wind and you're almost being sucked along, not just the wind resistance being reduced, but yeah. also being sucked along by a peloton. So yeah. this is a very real thing and arguably the biggest factor when we talk about this record attempt. I think the shoe's a bigger factor personally. Okay. I think that the shoe is a makes a bigger difference to performance than the than the drafting. I'm I find the drafting really interesting because you see all these models and even in response to the discussion in 2017 about the big clock and the car and the pace setters, some guys from Siemens did a um, aerodynamic model of it. 
And they ended up concluding that the, the pace setters provided the vast majority of the drafting benefit. And the numbers were, I think, four minutes and eight seconds, they reckoned, the pace setters were saving on that day. That's that's nonsense. That's saying that Kipchoge that day, he runs two hours, 25 seconds, and four minutes, 10 seconds of that was pace setters. So you're saying that without those pace setters, he'd run a 205-ish? No. Yeah. It just doesn't – there's all these, like, paradoxes or, or things just don't quite add up in a line. There's others around pacing – and then they get explained away with these cherry-picked, I think, circular arguments and so forth. But the but the point is that the guys have the guys are saying that the flying V is worth four and a bit minutes. The car is worth another twenty seconds. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Now, I'm on a bike, and I don't want to. If I'm cycling to work and I don't want to sweat, I find a bus, and I get in behind the bus and I just freewheel all the way to work. Yeah. So my experience has been that if you get a large square object in front of you, it's very beneficial. <laughs> Their explanation or their rebuttal of that was that their front runner was about five meters behind that that windshield. Yeah. And that's too far to get the benefit at these speeds. Fine. Okay. I'll take that. But um, I heard subsequently that they learned from the first one and they don't want the controversy. So they're not going to, they're going to have a smaller clock. We'll see. Okay. I suppose a car in front of them in any in any shape or form is going to be an advantage. And when I mean, you think about cycling, and I know even an Ironman triathlon, there's a, a sort of a box around those individual cyclists doing Ironman events, which I think is, I'm not quite sure of the distance, but it's something like 20 meters. Yeah. Because they reckon even if you're 20 meters behind, there's still some benefit to the person some. in front of you. So some. obviously it doesn't feel like a long way for me. No, to me either. And yeah. I, again, I've cycled at three to five meters behind a yeah. truck and so on. And you, you, you hardly pedal at all. Yeah. Um, it takes away just about all the air resistance. That's what it feels like. Yeah. But then it feels similar when you're in the middle of a big pack of riders. Yeah. They've got six runners in a V. So you've got your tip of the spear, two diagonally behind him and one more behind that. And then Kipchoge will presumably be in the pocket yeah. of that little V. Now, the I read again, some they said that they tested various formations, squares, blocks, circles, I don't know. And they found that um, this is the one that has the lowest oxygen cost for Kipchoge. So again, it would be amazing to see this. It's, again, it's a yeah. giant experiment happening in secret. Yeah. Um, but but the, yeah, the models suggest four minutes. It's not four minutes. It's impossible. Um, I worked with a, at the time of 2017 in the previous sub two, there was an aerodynamic engineer who helped me out with some modeling on, on Twitter. And we reckoned it could be between 120 and two minutes, one minute, 20 and two minutes. If you made, but again, you had to make certain assumptions. And whenever you make assumptions, you set up all these circular arguments. So I really don't know. But the other thing that I find really interesting is we watched Bekele last weekend. I was just going to talk about this. Running 201.41. Yeah. And for the last 20K, Bekele was by himself. Yes. He, he was his own windbreak. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he ran a 60-minute 36, I think, second half without any drafting benefits. Yeah. Now, you're telling me that if he'd had someone with him or a group of runners around him, he'd run a 59-20 second half? No chance. Yeah. No chance. And so there's this paradox where the first half of marathons and the second half of marathons are pretty much always the same or even the second half faster, yet they're done without the benefit of drafting. Mm. So I'm saying, well, all right, I get that. In Berlin, you're not running with your perfect flying V and you're not going to get the theoretical four-minute advantage, but you're getting maybe one minute, 30 seconds, Yeah. but you don't see it in the performance. Mm. So it seems that the performance and the model 
are distinct from one another. So there's some, I, I just, yeah, maybe a <laughs> physicist can, can explain this to yeah. me, but if you got, if you got a 30 second per half marathon benefit, then your prediction would be that for equal effort, the runner would run the first half 30 seconds faster than the second half. Make, yeah. 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 You agree? Yeah. Never happens. Yeah. It's always the other way around. And Kipchoge broke that world record running by himself for the last 16, 17K because his pace setters were gone at 25. Yeah. So you're saying that if he'd had a pace set, he'd run sub 201? I yeah. guess they are. But it's just yeah, a paradox. I, I can't see it. What would be recently. absolutely fascinating, and I, I don't know whether a, a, a big city marathon like Berlin would ever consider this, but one of the limiting factors I always think in seeing a fast time on the road is the fact that those pace setters do um, – pull out at 25Ks because they can't keep up with the pace. About Would they ever consider substituting pace setters into the second half of a marathon even if they weren't running the full marathon? I suppose there's some ethical issues around that. But that's essentially what they're doing here is that all of the runners that are assisting here in that V-shape, none of them are running the full distances. They're running them in batches and at, and at different stages. So we've got some pretty big heavyweights in terms of those runners in that V formation with Kipchoge. And the only person running the full, full 42 kilometers is Kipchoge himself. Yeah, by my count, I mean, I'm just on their website now. They've so far named 41, unless I've miscounted, pace setters. Yeah. And many of them are 1,500 meter runners. The Ingebrigtsen brothers are in that group. Okay, they're also 5K guys. But still, you've got um, Stuart McSwain is in that group, Ronald Quemoy. So these are guys you might have seen in Doha last week. They're going to pace set. Are they going to do 2K batches? Maybe they're yeah. going to switch out at the end of every long straight around the bend. That would allow you to run a 4.6-kilometer stint yeah. and then have a, what would it be? It'll be a 9K rest. So you'd have a 4K stint and then a 20-minute rest maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's what they plan to do. So, yeah, they switch it in and out. And And what you said is will we one day see that in other marathons? At the moment, it's not the case. You can start as a pace setter. But you can't enter the race at some point as a pace setter. Yeah. Remember, it used to be Bannister's Bannister's four minute mile was controversial at that time because he used fellow runners to pace set for him. And what they did there was that one of them would start with him. They'd all start together. And one of them would keep up with him for the first two laps, and the other one would jog really, really slowly. Yeah. And when Bannister came to lap that guy, then he would adopt the pace setting duty. So that was their little loophole. I reckon that one day we might see pace setters come in at halfway. Yeah, and you'll have a batch for the first half and a batch for the second half. Yeah, yeah. But the other, the other parallel, I guess, is the women's world record. Um, there are two world records. There's one for a women's only race, and there's one for a mixed event. And the reason they separate them is because in the mixed event, the men can keep up with the women yeah. from start to finish, yeah. so they effectively get paced all the way to the line. Whereas in the women's only race, they've got the same conundrum: who's gonna stay with a world record for 36k yeah. no nobody can Only the world record holder <laughs> exactly so you you are stuck for company yeah there's no one to keep your company so yeah. i i don't know whether this kind of model you know this this somewhat contrived model becomes our new normal yeah i think the shoes become the new normal you said it and i didn't respond to it but all the shoe companies are now looking at similar yeah. yesterday in the in the doha marathon at the world champs the guy in fourth was wearing Sarconi's version of the Vaporflies with a yeah. carbon fiber plate. Hoka's got their version. Adidas has a version. I've got another friend who works for a company, I won't say who it is, but they're trying to reverse engineer the Vaporfly. So they've got it and they've disassembled it and now they're trying to test all its parts and they're going to make theirs. 
Yeah. So we are now in the arms race of footwear. Yeah. In the same way that swimsuits in 2008-9 got into a, an arms race and it got ridiculous. Yeah. That's where I think we go. And so maybe 158-159 becomes the new normal yeah. because we just allow standards to creep. Yeah. Just on the footwear by the way, the current law as written by the IAAF says that any device that gives an unfair advantage should be banned. It's a weak policy because define unfair advantage. Yeah. Scientist Peter Way and a friend of mine from Dallas says that they could ban the shoe today because it clearly gives an unfair advantage based on the size of the effect that mm -hmm. has been shown in, in lab studies. But there's no policy for it. So in the absence of that policy, it's open season. They'll all do it. Well, not to sound overly cynical, but I imagine if you do that to a company the size of Nike that puts in so much money into the sport of athletics, it, it could be slightly counterproductive. But uh, that's just my cynical if, journalism if, hat that I've got on there. No, that's realism, not yeah. cynicism. If this shoe yeah. was made by a small player that had a 0.4% market share, yeah. they'd have banned it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is one last point on the pace setting. I'm always fascinated to know, and we saw this in the discussion around Kinesi Bikili's run in Berlin is, a, is an interesting one in this context. If pace setting is so important, Yes, there is a aerodynamic benefit from that, but pace setting itself, how is it how important is it to be running with somebody that can set a pace? Is it about matching stride for stride? How does that what's the sort of science behind the, the pace setting speed that these guys run at? You mean in a in a psychology, emotional yeah. Yes, context. in other words, if you're running with somebody and we see this in track events a lot of the time, so somebody goes off, they've got to run at a certain speed, the person behind them is not necessarily getting a benefit in terms of aerodynamics, but is being set a certain pace. Why is it important for somebody to be set a certain pace in any distance event, whether it's 1500 right through to the marathon? And um, is there a psychological reason why that person running at that pace takes the pressure? Let's Maybe that's the theory. Does the person running that pace, running behind the pacemaker, in other words, got a better chance of succeeding at that pace because he's just following uh, footsteps? rather than having to think about the pace himself. I think that's a big part of it. I don't I haven't ever seen it quantified. We tried to do a study on this when I was still at the university here in Cape Town where we wanted to see whether guys 5k performances would be improved with another runner. Yeah. Um we weren't using them as pace setters per se, but we 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 just had either two guys on the track or one at a time. And we didn't find it, but it was it was a it was a clumsy study and not in hindsight, not very well done. But I do think that there is an emotional cost towards managing your own pace. Yeah. Um, and an elite athlete, that emotional cost is pretty small because they're so locked in. I mean, you, if you didn't have a watch on Kipchoge and you asked him what pace is he running, I reckon his margin for error would be two seconds a kilometer. So he would know his pace. I think he, he knows it. The elite runners who train for years and they understand what a 68 second 400 and a 69 and a 71 feel like they, they dialed in pretty well to really? that. I mean, some people have no clue about pace, but most elite athletes that I've ever known, even sub elites are pretty good at it. I mean, even, yeah. even my dad used to know, I used to go running with him when I was younger and, uh, so how fast are we going? Oh, 520. Okay. And he'd be right. And he'd be 518 or 521. He, he just knew how fast is it? No, no, it's yeah. five now. So they, they do know, um, but there's still a cost to that. Yeah. Um, and I think there's an emotional and a psychological cost that's obviously quite difficult to quantify. You don't need another runner to unburden the guy of that because the car 
could do it. You know, you, you've got a yeah. pace car in front of you and you put that thing in cruise control at 21k an hour, the car becomes your your rabbit, as it were. Yeah. But I do think that there's a cost. In a race situation, which is not Vienna, the guy in front is always obviously seen to be the target, which is why front running is generally not yeah. done. Although at the World Champs, there were a lot of front running wins. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's because other guys who are almost equal to you in ability now have you to key off. They'll just sit, 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 and then I'd kick you. Yeah. That's not Kipchoge's concern. But I think that there's probably some some benefit of company. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, if those guys are running 4Ks with Kipchoge, let's say at 253 a K, that's not a big effort for them. They'll talk to him. They'll hand him water so that he doesn't have to go and get his own energy and his own fluids. They'll encourage him. They'll 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 speak to one another and that has to be beneficial. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Let's just talk a little bit about some of the other things that they're doing. There's talk about this the the Martin um, nutrition products. They're using apparently a gel. How much of that two-hour effort will rely on hydration and nutrition? I've always I believe that hydration and nutrition is like is like vitamins. If you if you're deficient in it, you pay. There's yeah. a negative cost of not having it, but having more of it doesn't make you better, mm. right? Now, the premise of, of Martin, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Morton, Martin, whatever it is, Martin, is, that, yeah. is that your body's ability to get carbohydrates into the blood and therefore to the muscles is limited in part by how quickly you can get it out of your stomach and your intestine. You know, the, the physiologists always say in the stomach is not in the body. It's outside the body. Yeah. And so when you use very sugary drinks, the problem is that those sugary drinks sit in the stomach and they actually draw water into the stomach and you get bloating, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting and so on. What Martin has done um, is they've packaged the carb in what they call hydrogel technology. So they use algin and pectin, uh, algate, sorry, which is like a seaweed extract and pectin to create basically a little package around the carbs that hides it from the stomach. So now instead of having a drink that's 7 to 8% carbs, you can have it up to 14% carbs. So in theory, more gets into the intestine, more gets into the blood, more gets into the muscle. That's the theory. I'm pretty skeptical until I see good evidence of this, that it has a performance benefit. I have seen a study on, on gastric emptying, which is how quickly does, let's say, every 500 mils get from the stomach into the intestine. Yeah. And it is better with the technology. There's okay. no doubt that it improves gastric emptying. Whether it improves performance or not, I think depends on whether the performance was limited by not having it in the first place. Mm. In other words, adding a fifth wheel doesn't make a car any better. <laughs> it's already got four. If it's down to three and you add the fourth wheel on, now you're talking. And I think the same principle is in play here. I don't know that a Kipchoge was ever limited by energy supply. So giving a more energy might not do anything. But again, I don't know this. So what I do know is that there's still no evidence of this. It's been four years that they've been making this claim and there's still no paper, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Now, that is an interesting thing, but I guess uh, every bit helps. And if they can potentially get more energy into his body, that's going to be uh, maybe three or four seconds or whatever science comes out around that. So just to wrap up, um, for those of you who want to follow it, obviously there's lots of stuff online about it. What is the site that they're actually using to promote the um, – the, 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 it's a 159, the Ineos 159. Of course, Ineos sponsor, sponsors of the Formula Sky cycling team, uh, but also no, behind this as well. Yeah. What's the website? 
Uh, so that, so you could Google Enios 159, but the right. full name of the website is Enios 159 Challenge, all one word with yeah. the numbers. And it's got some maps and so on. One it's got some cool graphics, actually, and some cool yeah, videos. Yeah, they show you the video, where it runs, who the pace setters are. Just one interesting thing on that. I, I don't know whether this is just an oversight, but there's a if you click on events and you then look at the map that shows you the course and gives you a few stats, there's a sort of count-up clock. And it goes 157, 58, uh, sorry, 158, 57, 58, 59, and then it stops at 159. Yeah. And I, when I saw that, I was like, are they, are they trying to run a 159 or they're trying to run a 159 and 59 seconds? Because that, that extra minute is a lot. <laughs> because to go, As from, we've discussed. to go from two hours 25 to 159.59 is a 26 second improvement. You need three times that. Yeah. If you're going to run a 159, which is what their clock seems to suggest, so yeah. I'm I'm curious as to whether that's just like a website developer's got the time rounding wrong. down to yeah. 159, or whether they're actually going to go off at 60 minute half pace and then hope that he holds on, mm. or are they going to try and bank time at the start? I don't know. That'll be interesting to see. Yeah. So I think the final, I mean, we have talked about this a lot in this podcast. That our sort of views, and this is a non-scientific view, and I know Ross, you've talked a lot about this, and. It's one of those things when I look at this, and I think if you've listened to our podcast throughout the year and you understand a little bit of our sort of our philosophies around sport, one of the critical things about an attempt like this is to is is about whether it's legitimate. And you know, for me, I look at this and I go, yes, it's an interesting experiment. It will certainly create a lot of hype for Nike if they do do it. But I think the sadness for me is that a guy like Ilya Kipchoge, who is one of the great marathoners of this world, is having his attention pulled away from a legitimate race like a Berlin. I mean, imagine having next year Kenanisa Bikile up against Kipchoge in Berlin in a race, the two fastest men in history racing each other with no pace setters from 21Ks. That, for me, as an athletics fan, is the ultimate marathon watching you will ever see. This feels to me that you're going to take away from that. And also down the line, if somebody does ever break that two-hour marathon mark legitimately in a marathon like Berlin or wherever the fast marathons are, people will say, well, it was done before. But as we've discussed in this podcast, it hasn't really been done before because it's been manufactured this way. And I think as a fan of athletics, it's interesting. But as you've said a number of occasions, and I agree with you on this, it's annoying because it takes away from what sport really means and what marathon running really means to the sport. Right. And the, sh the shoe does that in every race, but now this one, you've got everything added on together. Um, I mean, you're watching, no no fan of running can have watched Bekele like a couple of weeks ago in Berlin and say, cheapers, man, imagine Kipchoge had come back to defend that Berlin crown. And now oh, you get the two greatest runners in history racing head to head at world record pace. And you know that you'll never see that. You spoke about maybe Berlin next year. Not going to happen because they'll run Tokyo in the yeah. Olympic Games. And that'll Will be they? awesome. Well, assuming assuming Ethiopia pick Bekele for the marathon, who knows? Or there's an injury. But Kipchoge will go because Kenya would be insane not to pick him and he'll want to defend that title. That means they can't run Berlin because Tokyo will be the first week of August. Berlin will be September. It's impossible. So you'll never see it because they're not going to be running in 2021, yeah. surely, at the age of something like 40. I mean, that'll be. Yeah. And that challenges the victim of this stuff for me. <laughs> yeah, that head-to-head that -head at world record pace between these guys. I mean, the Tokyo race is going to be unbelievable if it happens. Yeah. You add Farah in there, assuming he doesn't fall off a cliff now that Salazar's, I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> but um, that, so, yeah, I want to see races. You know, we talk about the relevance of athletics. This doesn't make track and field and running more relevant, in my opinion. Yeah. 
It, yeah. It's cool. It's marketing. It's great hype and so forth. And people have said to me, oh, if he does it, it'll change the paradigm for what the next generation think is possible. It won't. Any more than running a sub-10 in Mexico made 10 seconds possible, it didn't. When Bannister broke the four-minute mile, there's this perception that it opened the floodgates and suddenly everyone imitated him. They didn't. It took three years for the next guys to come along and do it, other than Landy, and Landy was knocking on that door the whole time. Yeah. So I think this is overhyped. I find it frustrating. I find it annoying. But it's going to be a fun experiment. Yeah. I tell you what, I'm I'm going to be in Japan. I get to Tokyo Friday, and I'm I'm going to England, France on Saturday, which is when this should happen. So the Rugby World Cup for Rugby those of you who Cup. haven't been following our podcast. And uh, <laughs> I'm not heartbroken about the idea that I might not be able to watch this. I'd like to, but there's no there's no intrigue. The only intrigue is is he keeping up with the car? That's literally all you have to look for. If he is, he's on course. If he's not, he isn't. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, that's yeah. not for anyway. Well, whatever your views are on this uh, attempt on the sub two marathon, uh, please feel free to share them with us on a Sports SciPod. That's of course our Twitter handle, and we'd love to hear what your thoughts are about this uh, event and uh, what it means for athletics and what it means for sports in general. And uh, we look forward to seeing what happens. And if we 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 try to decide if we're going to do a post. Um, hot on this we, we might see what happens on the day but there'll be certainly lots of news and lots of news stories about this and I'm sure Nike will be sending out as much as possible around this attempt as well whether they do who do not succeed final question Ross are they going to do it yeah I think so I think that the, if 2 hours and 25 seconds was possible with the the now defunct shoe tech um, and they have added crowds and they've learned a little bit Kipchoge has experienced what it's like in that situation I can see those things being worth 30 seconds. So I would guess they'll run a high 159. The only thing is if they if they do away with the screen and it actually did have a benefit, do they lose more than they gain? But I would still, if I had to bet, if you forced me to put a bet, I would bet under 159.50. Okay. I want to take the opposite view. I think that Kipchoge it will be a little bit fatigued around this issue. I think there's been a pressure on him. I think he's run a lot of marathons. I think they'll miss it, and I'll miss it by more than previous, the previous effort. So, that is that is interesting. I like it. I like the contrarian view. I yeah. hope that it happens. I hope that he doesn't. Yes. I, I don't. I don't want. I want to see it in a legitimate <laughs> Sorry, race. Elliot. Yeah. I want to see it in a legitimate race when it actually represents something like a human advance, as opposed to a technological sidestep. But one thing that is interesting is that the clock ticks for everyone, not just on two hours, but on their careers. Yeah. And you're looking at a guy who's been running. I mean, he was a track athlete in his teens, and he's run twelve, I think, marathons now. At some point, people drop off. You know, we saw Kip saying, "Hold it for like 11, 12. Gabriel, but at some point, you come down. When does that happen for Kipchoge? If it starts now, he, he can't get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to go two hours and 53 seconds. That's my, I guess. Who knows what will happen on the day. Thanks very much, Professor Ross Tucker. I'm now you're on your way to Japan tonight to see some of the Rugby World Cup action. And uh, for those of you who haven't looked, looked at our fast podcast, we've been doing quite a lot of stuff in rugby in the last couple of weeks. So some very interesting pod did an interesting chat to Peter Bills, who is the author of the All Black book, The Jersey. And if you want to listen to a really fascinating podcast about the inside, the inside insights and the, and the intrigue around All Black Rugby, it's a really fascinating uh, insight to that. Of course, Nick Mallett was also here as a guest of ours a few weeks ago. That podcast is still up. So if you're still in Rugby World Cup mode, lots to listen to there. But uh, for those of the athletically driven, we're going to be watching this uh, sub-two-hour marathon attempt with great interest even though we might be a bit cynical. 
follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.